Well, you may have heard that the Hunger Games movie, the third installment of four, was released uh, in the theaters this last weekend. And if you haven't heard of these films, uh, they're all based on the New York, si- New York Times bestseller uh, Hunger Games trilogy by Suzanne Collins. Um, the books might be, you might think they're a little bit juvenile, but at least they're entertaining, and they've been wildly successful among readers, and now they've been wildly successful amongst moviegoers. The premise of the storyline takes place in uh, a dystopian future in which a rebel uprising has been squashed by a uh, tyrannical regime. The wealthy elite of the winning side live in a place creatively called the capital, uh, and then all of the surviving rebels live in 12 districts. Each of these districts is forced to work the land or produce goods, and all of these goods and crops go to serve the people in the capital, while the people in the districts, the surviving rebels, just live hand-to-mouth, barely surviving. Once a year, the people in the capital force each district to provide two people, two young people, a boy and a girl, to participate in the Hunger Games. It's Uh, a sick game. Think uh, Roman gladiators in the future, and only one person survives. And they do this every year to remind the districts that they should never even get it in their minds to rise up in rebellion again. Of course, as I, when I first read these books years ago, uh, being steeped in Roman and Greco, uh, Greco-Roman culture the last few years, I couldn't help but think, oh, this is just like Rome, oppressing all of its basal states, and they would do things like this. Uh, other people have seen allusions to Nazi Germany. Um, you can find some kind of parallel in the story, depending on what your background is. Most recently, I read uh, a CNN article that uh, sees in the Hunger Games a metaphorical link through the economic inequality of the United States. So just shows you can get anything out of this if you look hard enough. But at its very core, the Hunger Games is a lot like other narratives. In fact, there are hundreds of narratives just like it, whether it's The Matrix or Divergent or Cloud Atlas or Spartacus. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of stories about oppression and uprising, tyrannical rule and resistance, bondage and freedom. And every, t- every few years, you see this same package repackaged in a new story, a new movie, a new narrative, the same story of resistance and oppression. And it's reconsumed every few years by millions and millions of people. And it begs the question, what is the appeal to this type of story? Why do the same basic stories keep getting replayed year after year after year? I, I get it if, let's say, we lived in North Korea behind the fence, and if for some reason we were able to get a bootleg copy of, say, The Hunger Games or something, I'm sure it's not on their reading list of official uh, you can't, probably can't get a copy there, but if you could, I could see why a story like that would be encouraging. It might cause me to have hope to, to rise up against my regime. But why is it that, take the United States, for example, Canada, Western Europe, supposedly the freest people in the world, why do we eat this stuff up over and over again when it's repackaged? Could it be that there's resonance with these stories? Because deep down, each of us, no matter how free we are, supposedly on the outside, knows that the line that the world is feeding us in our media about what life is, about what the good life is, doesn't quite line up. That even in our freedom, there can be oppression, there can be lies. The story we're exploring this evening is perhaps the prototype 
for all the narratives that come before the Hunger Games. It's one of the stories that shapes us as human beings, let alone as followers of Jesus. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 6-1. And I want to encourage you to stand with me uh, as I read this to us. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And what's happened is, up to this point, is Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel believe that God wants to deliver them from Pharaoh and Egypt. And so they're going to go visit Pharaoh now. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't even know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that, the, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many. And you would have them cease from their labors? So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks, which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. They are not to reduce any of it, because they're lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our Lord. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so they will pay no attention to these false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. And go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it. But none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making brick as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why did you deal this way with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants. And yet you keep saying to us, make bricks. And saying to us, behold, your servants are, are being beaten. But it is the fault of your own people. But he said, you're lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now, work, for you will be given no straw. Yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. Foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. And when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you've made us a stench in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword to their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done harm to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under a mighty hand he will let them go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of the land. Lord, it just strikes me as we read through this narrative how you work in your own timing and in mysterious ways. I think about all your promises of presence and deliverance and rescue. And I think, Lord, of all of us who at one time or another, maybe even right now, have gone through long seasons in the desert wondering where you are. Thank you for the outcome of the story and so many like it in your word and in life where you do come through, where the psalmist even has learned, blessed are those who wait on the Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open this word to us tonight and encourage us wherever we're at. That you would give us hope where uh, we're struggling and that you would challenge us where we need a kick in the pants today. Bless you, Lord, that you know what is good for each of us. Help us to be open to you. I was less than two years into my first ever paid position in a church, a young associate pastor. My lead pastor uh, had a thriving ministry in India, reaching different cities for prayer. And for the first time in my job there, he was going to leave me by myself to pastor this church for five weeks as he went to go personally check in uh, with these ministries in India. Now, when he first told me that, I was like, you're going to have like one of your friends check in with me a lot, right? And he's like, oh, there's no need for that. I'll give you their numbers. And, and for four months before he left, he groomed me and, uh, you know, got all the phone numbers just right and encouraged me. And we prayed through different scenarios. And, and so by the end of it, I was like, fine, you know, what could happen in five weeks? My pastor thinks I could do it. The elders think I could do it. I know Jesus is with me. Let's do this thing, right? A lot can happen in five weeks. A lot can happen in five weeks. For example, uh, you can get a call from a hysterical woman who just found out that her husband was having multiple affairs. And you can sit with this person as their heart is metaphorically out there on a coffee table, floundering, and not know what to say or what to do. And maybe that was best for that situation. In five weeks, you can get the flu the day before you were preaching two services. In five weeks, a young associate pastor covering for the lead pastor for the first time can hold hands unexpectedly with someone as their life, life slips away in an emergency room. And then that young pastor can plan his first funeral and graveside service. Five weeks didn't go nearly as smoothly as I had hoped. But through it all, hear this with a grain of salt, I'm glad they went that way. Because out there on my own, as I took steps of faith, Jesus met me in those moments, increased my faith, strengthened me as a person. Not because I was strong, but because I was weak and I had to rely on Jesus. I'm thankful, actually, that it didn't go smooth sailing because I'm not sure I would be at the same place with Christ as I was after that experience. Just before our story this evening... Moses is full of confidence. God has given him these three amazing signs to go show to Pharaoh. 
he's met with his long-lost brother, Aaron, convinced Aaron that God is on their side. Then Aaron and Moses go to the elders of Israel and say, hey, we've got these special powers, and God wants us to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. Brimming with confidence, we get to just knocking on the door of chapter 5, which leads us to our story tonight. Moses is on his journey south, gets before Pharaoh, and he says, no way. Never heard of your God not letting your people go. In one sense, this whole chapter is fairly straightforward. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, does what all oppressors do. Uh, Verse 9 explains how he makes the labor even harder on the Israelites so that they won't even have time to pay attention to the words of Moses and Aaron, words he sneakily calls lies. In fact, he makes their work nearly impossible. Making bricks, as we discussed in weeks earlier, was already back-breaking work, working all day long uh, with clay. And what you would do with these bricks is put straw inside the clay. And the reason for that is because the straw would break down in the brick-making process and release something called humic acid. And that makes the brick more plastic, more malleable, so that it doesn't crumble and break, and it has a a lot longer shelf life in a building. The straw was absolutely necessary. Up to this point, the Egyptians supplied all the straw necessary. The, the, The Hebrew people just showed up, got the clay. It was already hard enough. But now the Israelites would have to get up earlier or work even later, find their own straw. It wasn't even a sustainable situation. Pharaoh knew this. He knew that for a while the production would go down. So why did he do it? He did it to make a point. If you resist, you will be crushed. Secondly, Pharaoh makes an example of the rebel leaders, Moses and Aaron. He claims that they are the reason I had to inflict this on you, right? as if they made him make the choice. In the end, it's Moses and Aaron who are blamed for making their own people's lives harder. Pharaoh's rhetoric is so successful that Moses himself then turns to God and blames God. This is your fault. You sent us here. It's your fault that Pharaoh's a jerk and did all this to your people. If you're looking to be a world dictator, by the way, you could take a page right out of Pharaoh's notebook because he's very good at this whole oppressor thing. He's effectively discredited Moses and Aaron and made the people actually believe that they had it better before, when they were just slaves forced into labor. It reminds me of uh, the Stockholm Syndrome. Have you heard of this in psychology, right? Roughly 8% of people who are in a hostage situation uh, end up having endearing feelings for uh, their oppressor. And in fact, sometimes a SWAT team will come and kick the door down and the hostage will say, no, no, my, my, you know, my kidnapper didn't mean it. Or or let me explain. They're actually a good person. And it's kind of a defense mechanism so that, uh, you know, you are actually taking care of the one who has the power over your life. When you think about some of the ways that we defend the evils of the world as being necessary or as being just the way the world works, we, we kind of do this all the time. We kind of have a Stockholm uh, syndrome with the way that the world works. We sometimes get in bed with the evils of the world and defend them because kind of is what makes the world go round. And if you look really closely, I think we're all taking crazy pills. But Verse 17 is a great example of this. Pharaoh says, you're lazy, very lazy. Therefore, you say, let's go sacrifice to the Lord. So n- go now and work. <clears throat> the main problem here is that Pharaoh 
is mistaken about who he's made enemies with. For a brief moment, Pharaoh thinks that his enemies are just these two upstart guys, Moses and Aaron. But what he's about to find out in the chapters that come, and you're going to have to wait till next fall for that, is that he's vastly underestimated his opponent. He's up against none other than Yahweh himself. Pharaoh has exerted his rule over the wrong people. He's tried to oppress the children of God. He's about to find out what God means when he tells Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For by a strong hand he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of the land. See, the real issue at stake in the story is a fight over who is the legitimate king of Israel. God called these people, made a covenant with them, and when they cried out to God in distress over their slavery, he heard And he acted by sending Moses. His instructions to Moses are very specific. Moses was to go to Pharaoh and tell him not only to let the people go free, but to let them go free so that they could go worship God. Pharaoh, on the other hand, thinks the Israelites are his people, his possessions. And like most tyrannical rulers, the Israelites were just cogs in his machine. They were his labor force. And if you notice the repetition in this chapter, look at how many times the word work is used. It's used by Pharaoh in terms of what he wants from Israel. Now, here's the interesting thing. The word work in Hebrew has the same root as the word for worship. So this is a battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh for whom the people will work for or worship. Isn't that interesting? So when Pharaoh says, you people are lazy, lazy, therefore you say, go and sacrifice to the Lord. Let us go free that we may sacrifice to the Lord. Another way of saying that is, let us go free that so that we may go and work for the Lord. And then he says, no, no, you go and work for me. You go and worship me by doing the labor I have impressed upon you. See, in a polytheistic world, uh, the Egyptians believed in many gods. Pharaoh didn't have a problem with a claim from a foreign god named Yahweh. What he had a problem with was someone telling him what to do on his own turf. At this time in Egypt, the pharaohs believed that not only were they uh, the highest person in their land, but they were the personification of one or more of the Egyptian gods. So Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord of Israel. Pharaoh's point is not that he hasn't heard of Yahweh. His point is, this Lord of yours, no concern of mine. I'm top dog around here. I do what I want. These people serve me. They work for me. Their work is worship to me. Bug off, Moses and Aaron. You and your foreign God are of no consequence to me. In a sense, this sums up the struggle we humans have had since the Garden of Eden. God created us, sustains us, puts us in the beauty of creation, gives us the dignity of good work to care for creation, to be sub-creators, to make something, to unlock potential in creation. But it's almost as if we can't believe it could be that good. We're always looking for the grass is greener on the other side. We're constantly looking for more, for independence. We want to be our own masters. And when it doesn't work out for the vast majority of us, we seek masters in other things, other people. And the reality is that every king, every master, lays a claim on us. 
Every person has a master, even if it's you. If you even if you think it's you, if you're under that delusion right now that you think you're your own master, that's cool. But even you have a claim on yourself. And when you listen to the tapes in your head, you're pretty hard on yourself, I would guess. You're not even a good master for yourself, okay? Everyone has a master, and every master lays a claim on us. The question, then, of Exodus 5 is, whom will I serve? Whom will I worship? Whom is my master? Every ruler demands loyalty. So an important question is, where do our loyalties actually take us? What are the costs of loyalties to this king or to that queen? And what are the benefits? Like, seriously, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. So this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. And this text in Exodus 5 points us to that theme. Exodus 5 is a conflict between two kings, King Yahweh, King Pharaoh. Centuries later, the psalmist and Ben read this earlier, would record a beautiful poem in which God talks about the king he would send one day to rule in truth and grace with the authority of God. So, first of all, just kind of a matter of fact, just to kind of get the playing ground even here. There can be only one king. Like, any, ask any king, do you want me to, like, shop around and have other kings? Every king wants to be the only king, right? So there can be one king. And we can argue about who that king or who that queen is. But in the end, it's going to be obvious. Either it's going to be Jesus. He's going to turn out to be correct and, and we'll be like, yay, we, I'm glad we chose that. Or this whole thing's a sham and we should probably go look for another king or queen. But it, so in the end, we'll, we'll find out who's the real deal. Okay? The simple observation that there could be only one king and that as a Christian, I say that that's Jesus. I don't say that because, oh, that's the Christian worldview. I read it in a theology book, and I'm supposed to preach that or I'd lose my ordination. Okay, that's not why we preach that Jesus is king. Preach Jesus is king because it's our conviction as followers of Jesus, because we found it to be true. It's our conviction that the one who told the storming sea, be still, and it was still, is the king. It's, it's our conviction that the one who walked on the waves of chaos, representing uh, the chaos gods of the ancient Near East, is the true king. The one who told blind eyes to see and they saw and lame legs to be healed and to stand and they did, he's the one who has the authority to do those things. The one who confronted terrifying demons and powers of evil, casting them out with just a word, is also the one who has authority in the spiritual realm, not just the physical. We preach Christ as king because the evidence leads us to that conclusion. And that leads us to another reality. While most of us here, I I would think, while most of us would agree theologically that Jesus is king, you know, the Bible says that, preacher says that, the theology books say that, we also know that life, day-to-day life, is not lived just in big ideas. Like when you're in school, that's cool. You can live in the big ideas. But then you have to actually go do stuff. And you know that big worldview, broad sweeping beliefs, they don't actually play out. Life is lived in the monotony, in the day-to-day, in the ups and downs. And what we really believe comes to light when we're stressed or when we're threatened, what we do. 
With three small children under our roof, it's a weekly occurrence lately that one of them will wake up, Corey or I, in the middle of the night with a, Mommy or Daddy, I'm scared, or I had a bad dream, or I'm going to the bathroom, or whatever it is. Crying out makes sense, because at this point in my little kids' lives, calling out to mom or dad is calling out to the one who provides for them. I don't want my kids to be worrying about the details of life right now. I don't want my my kids to be seeking their security or being worried about money or performance. I I don't want them waking up in the middle of the night worried like, are we going to have breakfast tomorrow? Is there going to be food? And I think it will be horrifying as a father if in the middle of the night I hear my kids crying, Mommy, help me, I had a bad dream. Or calling out the name of their sports coach because they're so anxious about performing. Help me, Coach James. That's his real name. He's really cool, though. Or help me, you know, Miss Kofor or Miss Jacobs, help me. Because they want to so badly to perform for their people. In Exodus 5.15 when Pharaoh increases the workload on the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the foremen, they cry out not to God, but to Pharaoh. They may believe God was God over the big ideas and the long-range plan, but when it came to practical things, they actually cried out to their oppressor. Isn't that interesting? Who do you cry out to? Where do you look actually go to when things are hard what is your source of fulfillment you know at first alternative masters to jesus counterfeit kings and queens are so seductive they offer the potential of freedom and fulfillment and power comfort or prestige some of us may be making our careers our king They are the road maybe to self-fulfillment. Maybe we're trying to prove something to a mom or dad who never believed in us. We're trying to get their attention even now that we're all grown up. Maybe we have an insatiable hunger for influence and power. In the beginning, man, climbing the career ladder, no matter what field you're in, it's intoxicating. And our society totally will back you in it. If you're the good, responsible child who went to college or went and got a trade and you're starting to to move up the ladder, or maybe you've got a significant other in your life. Boy, you really made it. That's really important stuff. Good for you. In the beginning, climbing the career ladder makes us look responsible and successful and even enviable. High school reunions are the best. No, I said nobody ever, but anyway. <laughs> but you got to ask the question, like, who are we doing this for? Who actually wins in that track? In the end, it's the company who wins or the the consumer who wins if you're an independent contractor or it's the world who ends up winning because in the end, after estranged marriages and burned bridges and hypertension, after it all, you get old. Sorry. And, And then somebody younger and hungrier comes in and takes your spot. And it's out with the old and in with the new and everybody forgets your name unless it's on a plaque somewhere and then they just polish it. The new guy or girl has to polish it. Or maybe your king is just to, you know, I'm not into all that uh, ambition. I just want to make enough to have enough to spend enough on me. And it's a great lifestyle at first. But you know, the more we own, the more potential we have to be owned. And the more we love the good life, the more we got to have the good life. 
And soon our work, I mean, even noble work, even the noblest work in the world, however you define that, whether it's medicine or, 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 or counseling or education or whatever it is, economics, whatever that noble work is, even that can become corrupt if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You can, have a, you can even start off great. I'm going to be a missionary. And in the end, you could find yourself, oh, I want to be published or I want to be something. I want to be someone within my group. And you, you wake up and you realize you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And conversely, you could have the lowliest job in the world, according to the world, whatever lowly is. But if you do it with joy in the Lord, it can be holy work. I remember when God, uh, for the second time in my life, re-engaged me in my 20s and I was in the Coast Guard. Head over heels, I was just captured. My imagination, my heart was captured by Jesus. And I was literally inside, you, you guys, I know this sounds like I'm making this up. I was inside a 3,500-gallon sewage tank. Our ship was actually being retrofitted, and so I had to pressure wash it. I'm in a Tyvek suit, and I'm cleaning out other people's bodily waste. <laughs> and I'm singing praise songs. And it was this awesome time, and I was actually thinking, this is a good service because people need these facilities every day, and this is like something important. And if you have that sense that God is with you, that you're doing it for a bigger reason— the grossest, lowliest work can be holy work. So we can look at the career path. We can look at the self-fulfillment, enjoyment path. And in Bellingham, we kind of have some other options, don't we? Many in our culture reject the pursuit of corporate success. In fact, instead of, you know, that might be more popular in downtown New York, but in our culture, isn't it more like, I just want to live simply. I'm going to have enough time to enjoy myself or the great outdoors or whatever it is. But in this search for freedom and self-fulfillment can be the trap just as easily as a hunger for money. Let's fight the system. Let's be one of the 99. Let's stick it to the man. 99%. It's all fine, but the question is always the same. Who is it for? Who is all of this for? Is this freedom that we're seeking, is it for our quality of life? Which basically makes me my own queen or king. I'm a king in my sense, right? Or am I doing all these things for the good of other people and for the glory of God? All of the masters in life, including Jesus, including Jesus, lay a claim on us. Let's not sugarcoat that reality. Jesus puts a claim on your life. Now, if we're weighing the pros and cons, then we've got to ask, where does following Jesus lead? And we've and we got to do this with our eyes wide open. So let's see, hmm, where does following Jesus lead? Well, it leads to death, to any other allegiances that interfere with following him. And let's not just leave that in big theory. It, that means it leads to death, to how I spend, where I spend my time, where I invest. It might mean not doing certain things saying certain things or doing everything I want to do in order to serve God and other people. He makes that claim. Following Jesus means following the one who tells us, hey, hey, following me includes picking up your cross, your instrument of death on a daily basis and following me. So that's kind of the eyes wide open part. It's not easy. And yet, following Jesus makes us more human. Well, before you think that that's not a good thing, let me explain. 
to be human, according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, is to be made in the image of God. To be human is to be made in the image of God. And Jesus is the fullest expression of God. He is, in becoming incarnate, the ultimate human being. Jesus is all that we were meant to be before we rebelled and began to fall and distort what being human really is. So when we follow Jesus as king, we find that we become more like him. Our longings in life actually begin to shift and to change. We begin to want what's best for other people, putting their needs before our needs at times. We develop a new outlook on life, new priorities. When we're honest about following Jesus and submitting ourselves to him, we begin to be to sense a conflict inside of us. That the things that used to be easy, that being selfish used to be more easy than it is now. Why is that? Why am I having this resistance? It's because God is rearranging our priorities, our outlook, to be more and more like him. And it's not just new ideas or new focus in life. It's also new energy, new hope that despite appearances, despite the crap we go through, it's this overwhelming sense of reality that Jesus is really with us through it all. Other kings, if we're really going to weigh the options, other kings will use you up and discard your lifeless soul when you've got nothing left to give. Jesus makes you more and more alive, even unto death. When the Israelites cried out to Pharaoh, he mocked them. He called them lazy. He increased their burden when they cried out for help. When we cry out to Jesus, he listens and says, uh, he, he's in our pain with us. He's the king who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you more labor. No, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my teaching, my, my, my authority on you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Now, here's the amazing thing about all this. It's not as if, you know, we're at this store and we've got all these different kings we can choose from. And, oh, there's the Jesus model. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, it's got some drawbacks like the whole taking up your cross thing. But, but in the end, it's really a good one. It's time release. The amazing thing about all of this stuff is that we have an opportunity to receive Jesus at all. Because when I look at my life, and I've never met a person that really differs, we're all traitors to King Jesus. Every single one of us has served other kings or queens. And that means that every single one of us is in deserving of judgment before that king, before Jesus. There is nothing we can do to make it right. We can't say, oops, sorry, I was a traitor. Uh, and I use that past tense, like, kind of wrongly, don't I? Because there were things I did last week. Thoughts, feelings, actions, inactions that were in re rebellion to the way Jesus wants me to be and live. Any other king would crush a rebel, right? Any other king would increase your burden, would snuff you out. Any other king would make an example of a traitor. And yet King Jesus laid his life down on our behalf that we might have life. What a king. 
what a savior. Not only is Jesus king, but he's good. He's a loving king, a king like no other. As creator of heaven and earth, he has more authority than any other king on, uh, on earth we could imagine. And yet he's more gracious than anyone I've ever known or read about. He is the king who washes feet, serves the lowly, heals our wounds, and reconciles relationships. He is the kind of king that woos us into relationship rather than forces his dictums upon us and says, you must do A, B, and C. And that makes him, in my book, and what I want to say to you is a king worth following. He's a king worth following, no matter what the stakes. Because in Jesus, we find the true life that we're looking for. Jesus, it still blows my mind that if all of this is true, all of your word revealed to us, then you simply are our creator. You are God, whether we recognize it or not. And it's so incredible to me that this reality is better than it has to be because if you are truly God, we don't get to pick what kind of character you have. We don't get to pick if you're good or bad. We just have to accept it because it would be just true but thank you that you are also a kind and gracious and loving god one who sacrifices yourself on our behalf one who calls us to life not to uh, burdens of service for you thank you that when we trust and submit to you you just encourage and breathe new life Bless you, Lord. Help us as we struggle to receive forgiveness, as we struggle to believe that you could love us, even us, like you say you do.